take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 8. The next two weeks, uh, we'll focus on the ministry of Stephen that stretches across uh, chapters 6 and 7. Today, we'll kind of be a broad overview of these 68 verses. Uh, And then next week, we'll get into some just a few more details and some further application, but, uh, but it all hangs together as one piece, so we're going to cover it all these next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, let me pray before we get started. Father, thank you so much for your word. Use it to bless our hearts this morning and strengthen us in the face of affliction as we remain faithful to preach your gospel message. In Jesus' name, amen. So this, uh, this episode with Stephen uh, comes at the climax of a larger section. I'm sure you've been tracking with, uh, like in chapter 4, all they do is kind of threaten Peter and John. In chapter 5, then they arrest all the apostles and they beat them. And the persecution gets worse and worse. Today, uh, they resort to murder. And Stephen becomes the first martyr in the church. I remember reading a gospel tract in college. At the top it read, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And initially I thought to myself, you know, oh brother, uh, one of these cheesy tracts that skew the gospel. Beneath the title, though, was a sketch of the Jews stoning Stephen. The ground around him red with blood but his face shining with glory. And all of a sudden, the message, God has a wonderful plan for your life, wasn't so cheesy. The picture sharpened the call of the gospel to take up our cross and die, and in so doing, find true life in Christ. You see, God's wonderful plan for our lives is that we know Christ, and we make him known to others at all costs. And we see that plan transpiring in the ministry of Stephen. As I said, we're doing a broad overview, and I've broken the passage down into three movements. Stephen's ministry, his message, and his martyrdom. His ministry, his message, and his martyrdom. Let's start with Stephen's ministry. We'll pick it up in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. 
Notice several aspects of Stephen's ministry here. And to begin, it was a spirit-filled ministry. Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 now says that he was full of grace and power. And we've observed elsewhere in Acts that power in the church is a direct result of Jesus sending the Spirit upon the church. God's Spirit filling His people. Verse 10 says that they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which He was speaking. And this is precisely what Jesus said uh, would happen for His disciples in Luke chapter 21. Remember, Luke is volume 1 of Luke Acts. If you look at Luke 21, verses 12 to 15, when the persecution came, Jesus said, Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That is happening here with Stephen. Jesus gives Stephen words by the Holy Spirit that they cannot withstand. And that's pretty huge because Stephen isn't one of the initial 12 apostles. Jesus' promise is good for disciples beyond the 12. It is good for us. Sometimes when we read about characters like Stephen, we, we place them on this untouchable pedestal. But we need to understand that these guys are normal men like us. It's the Spirit who made them great. And if we're in Christ, we have the same Spirit. The Spirit will enable us to accomplish great things for God, and we don't need to fear. Stephen's ministry was also a holistic ministry. Remember, he was one of the seven chosen to serve tables. But that didn't mean he never opened his mouth about Jesus. The Spirit leads him not only to meet tangible needs within the church, but to announce the good news to people outside the church. He even disputes with Jews here from, uh, from areas around north, the northern parts of Africa and, and uh, what we know as today as Turkey. They have moved into Jerusalem. He's, he's, uh, he's di- disputing with them in, this, in, this, in the synagogue and the Lord uses him to spread the name of Jesus while also serving tables. So his ministry is holistic in that it faithfully represents Christ in both word and deed. And we would do well to, min- to imitate this ministry. We care for people by tending to their needs, especially their need for Christ. And that takes words. You know, there's this old saying... Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. That's not true to the pattern that we find in the New Testament. Our ministry includes deeds, yes, but it must also include words, gospel words, or nobody gets saved. Stephen's ministry also suffered opposition. And suffered opposition. In verse 10, it says they can't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking, and so they resort to lying about him. If you can't win the argument, start throwing mud. That's their philosophy. Though it, may, it should never become ours. They say we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. In 
verses 13 and 14, then clarify that to blaspheme Moses in their minds is to speak against the law, and then to blaspheme God, at least here in their minds, was to speak against this holy place. So that is their their temple and, and all that it signified. Keep in mind that these are false witnesses. Very soon it becomes clear that Stephen's attitude toward both the law and the temple is rather positive. He just sees their true meaning in Christ versus his opponents who miss Christ altogether. Before we turn our attention there, however, let the opposition sink in here. Once again, we're seeing that a spirit-filled ministry is not sunshine and roses. A spirit-filled ministry will be hated by the world. The world will initially, I mean, will intentionally lie about us in order to shut us up. But during these moments, the church need not fear. The Spirit will also give us strength to suffer well. The ministry of Stephen illustrates that. That's part of the reason it's in your Bible. To illustrate that the Spirit will give us strength. It, it gives us confidence that the same way that in the same way that Jesus was sustaining this servant, Stephen, that he will sustain us as well. Let's turn our attention now to Stephen's message, starting in chapter 7, verse 1. And I'm going to read the whole message and then come back to tackle his, his argument. So bear with me here. If you need to stand up, do it uh, to uh, stay focused. It says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and his fathers. 
And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You want to kill, kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame, a fire, and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent us as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it, with, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. 
but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's Stephen's message. Stephen summarizes over 2,000 years of Israel's story and links it to Jesus. Folks, this is a glimpse at true wisdom. You remember he said that they could not withstand the wisdom with which he was speaking. This is a picture of true wisdom. Wisdom involves knowing your Bible frontwards and backwards and how it all points to Jesus. Wisdom speaks by the Spirit of God to reveal the Son of God from the Word of God. Stephen's message in particular covers four epics, and they're easy to identify because each of them introduces a key figure in Israel's story. You get Abraham, then you get Joseph, and then you get Moses, and then you get the era of David and Solomon. Stephen's message is a response to the high priest who says in verse 1, Are these things so? What things? Well, the two things they just accused him about. You blaspheming Moses and the law, and you blaspheming God and his temple. Are these things so? Well, Stephen lays out his defense by recounting God's dealings with Israel from the Scriptures. And let's see what he says about these two two charges. First, what does he say about God and His temple? The Jews show some level of trust in this holy place. Their identity and worth are bound up with this temple. It's, It's their precious. As long as the temple stands, they they believe God's favor automatically belongs to them. That's why they get so peeved at Jesus when he calls the temple a den of robbers, runs a bunch of people out. They question his authority to replace it. Well, Stephen, following Jesus, never speaks against the temple itself per se. In fact, in verses 44 and 47, he acknowledges that the tabernacle and the temple were part of God's plan in the first place. They were copies pointing to the heavenly reality. But as he retraces Israel's story, it brings some much-needed perspective on the temple as God's dwelling place. And I want you to notice the pattern. Let's go back to verse 2. The God of glory appeared to Abraham, our father, when he was in Mesopotamia. Now verse 9. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. That is, with him in Egypt. 
Verse 33, verse 33, at the burning bush in Sinai, this is the Sinai desert, the Lord says, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. This is offensive because they just said, he's blaspheming this holy place. And Peter's saying that ain't been the only holy place in scripture. The Lord revealed that the ground Moses was standing on in the Sinai desert was a holy place. Why was it holy? Because God's presence was there. Again and again, God wasn't constrained to a place or a building. He revealed His glory wherever He so pleased. He's relativizing the temple's importance. Okay? He's saying, look, you're treating the temple like this, but in the scope of God's redemptive plan, the temple is here, man. This is where it fits in. Verses 44 to 47 then speak about the tent in the wilderness and the temple under Solomon. Yet verse 48 says, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? In other words, if God made the universe, it's laughable to to, to limit Him to a hunk of bricks in Jerusalem. So part of Stephen's argument is relativizing the temple. It's to teach them from their own history that if you look here and here and here and here, God is greater than the temple. He never needed a temple in order to dwell with His people. He dwells with His people wherever they are, wherever they call upon Him. But something else He does is point them beyond the temple. Beyond the temple to the ultimate place where God reveals His glory supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. Notice that he started with the God of glory appearing to Abraham in verse 2. Glory is important because glory often is uh, when God would display his glory in the temple or the tabernacle and the temple is important. He starts there with the God of glory revealing himself to Abraham and then notice what happens in verse 55. So we're going to have to jump ahead a little bit. To see this, in verse 55, he says, But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God, or, uh, or uh, let's see, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You can also translate that. He saw the glory of God, even Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. In other words, God's glory is now being manifest in the person of Jesus. So in context, the point is that God no longer reveals His glory in that hunk of bricks over there, but in the person of Jesus. Jesus Himself said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And He was talking about the temple of His own body, John 2 tells us. Jesus replaced the temple. And here is where we see the glory of God manifest. He is where we meet with God. He is where we have access to God. He is where we find the forgiveness of our sins. Even Stephen will pray for Jesus, in verse 60, not to hold this sin against them. Why does he say that? Because it's only in Jesus now that is found the forgiveness of sins. So, the glory of God manifests access to God, the forgiveness of sins, the meeting place, these things aren't to be found in a holy place, but in a holy person, is his message. 
God's appearing to Abraham, his presence with Joseph, his deliverance through Moses, his revelation to Solomon. It was all serving this much larger trajectory, temples right here, this much larger trajectory that finds its culmination in the fullness of God dwelling bodily in Jesus Christ. They missed the goal of the temple being Jesus Christ. Stephen's message is, you tell me who's blaspheming God in his temple. They are, not Stephen. They are blaspheming by failing to see the temple as part of God's much larger plan to dwell with his people in Christ and to reveal his glory through Christ. They wanted the temple for their own glory. But the temple was just one small step toward the revelation of God's glory in Christ. And they were missing it. What about Moses and the law? What about Moses and the law? That was the other false charge they brought against Stephen. Was he blaspheming Moses and the law? It doesn't seem so. If you go to verse 20... Stephen says Moses was beautiful in God's sight. Verse 25, God was giving them salvation by Moses' hand. Verse 35, God sent him as both ruler and redeemer. This doesn't sound like blaspheming Moses at all. It sounds like honoring Moses. Who are the ones actually blaspheming Moses and the law? Well, it's rather ironic that those accusing Stephen of blaspheming Moses and the law are themselves setting up false witnesses. Perhaps they missed that commandment about bearing false witness against your neighbor. But in addition to that, what does the scripture say? Stephen goes back to Abraham. God promised to rescue a people to worship him. Look at verses 6 and 7. Abraham's offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. We know that's Egypt. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. So the whole point of the deliverance by God was the worship of God. Okay, that was the word, that was the promise given to Abraham. Well, the Joseph story then tells us how they got into Egypt, and the Moses story then tells us how they got out of Egypt, right? And eventually, Moses goes up the mountain to receive living oracles from God. Everything is in place, and now we're waiting for Israel to worship God for their deliverance. That was the point. That was the promise, right? They don't. Verse 39 says that they refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods. That's where idolatry always comes from, the heart. In their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. That's what idolatry is. Rejoicing in the work of your own hands, your own accomplishments, your own achievements, your own works. The goal was the worship of God for His grace. But they rejected the words of God's appointed Redeemer, Moses, 
And it thrusts them into idolatry. That's what happens all the time. You reject the words of God, it will thrust you into idolatry. They didn't worship God for the work of His hand, which His word had revealed. They worshiped themselves for the work of their hands. They worshiped their accomplishments, their works, their God replacements. And that was the pattern for Israel. And it went all the way up through their exile through all the way to rejecting all the prophets, which is the ones of your fathers didn't kill the prophets, he says. And now Stephen turns the story on them and basically says, and nothing has changed. Nothing has changed with you. Even Moses told you that God was going to raise up a prophet for you like him. That was in your law. Deuteronomy 18.15 He was going to be a redeemer who would deliver you. And Moses said, you better listen to him. Well, guess what? You didn't listen to him. You crucified him. You killed the righteous one, he says. There was a little note back in chapter 6, verse 15. It says that when Stephen was giving his defense, that his face was like the face of an angel. What's the point of that? because of verse 53. That's why I wanted you to see this is all hanging together as one piece here. Verse 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. What's going on here? Stephen is mediating God's revelation to them just like angels mediated God's revelation to Moses. He's another special messenger sent by God, although this time he interprets the law in light of its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And you know what they do? Following the pattern that they've seen throughout uh, their fathers in the Scriptures, they reject him. So at the end of the defense, you tell me who's blaspheming Moses and the law. Stephen can't be blaspheming Moses if he's preaching the Christ that Moses promised. It's the unbelieving Jews who are blaspheming Moses. That's Stephen's defense. They raise two charges. You're blaspheming Moses and you're blaspheming God. Stephen takes them to the scriptures and basically says, actually, it's the other way around. The reason I know it's the other way around is that you killed Jesus. The one whom the temple and the law were always pointing to to be in the first place. Stephen's gospel didn't oppose the law and the temple, but revealed what the law and the temple always pointed to. God's glory revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, his son. They weren't to trust in the temple for their salvation, but Christ. They weren't to trust in the law for their salvation, but Christ. And the same is true for us. We cannot trust in anything to save us except Jesus. No church activity, no church attendance, no Sunday school teacher, no teaching, no nothing, not our own law keeping. Nothing can save us except Jesus Christ alone. He is the righteous one in this passage. And as the righteous one, the righteous died for the unrighteous like us, that he might bring us to God. He alone must be our salvation. He alone is our access to God's glory and to God's forgiveness. 
Of course, these Jews don't like Stephen's message at all. You ever seen those cartoons where the character's face gets really red and like smoke's coming out of his nose, big train whistles going off in the background? <laughs> like, that's what happens with these unbelieving Jews. It says they stop their ears, don't even talk about the glory of Jesus anymore. Brings us lastly to Stephen's martyrdom. In verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. That same expression is found when he talks about people in the lake of fire. They, are, they hate God. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him and and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen not only speaks for Christ, but he suffers with Christ. In fact, Stephen images the sufferings of Christ. He he puts them on display. Just an exercise for you is to go back home and to read the Passion of Christ in all four Gospels. And I just want you to jot down all the various parallels that you see with Stephen here. Both are accused of blasphemy. Both are attacked by false witnesses. Both stand before the Sanhedrin. Both announce the Son of Man in glory from Daniel 7. Both get killed outside the city. Both ask the Lord to receive their human spirit. And both ask God to forgive those who mistreat them, to forgive their enemies. When we observe the martyrdom of Stephen closely, Stephen actually becomes a window through which we see Christ himself. And we need to make note of this. The spirit-filled person. How will you know the spirit-filled person? Because his life will look like Christ and him crucified. That's a spirit-filled person. That may not sound like God has a wonderful plan for your life. Because taking up your cross means death. But when the believer takes up the cross, he does so not as an end in itself, but to gain glory. To gain glory. What a gracious God we have. I mean, right in the middle of Stephen's darkest moment, God gives him a glimpse 
of His glory in Christ. And, and this should teach us something. It should teach us something really important. How do we endure affliction? How do we endure suffering? How do we endure injustice? How do we keep extending mercy to our enemies that hate our message? That's what Ben's been talking to us about from Jonah. What could possibly get us through the pain and loss of everything? When the terrorist group kills your daughter and has a knife to your throat saying, deny Him. Denounce Christ. The answer is not in your Smith and Wesson. Don't tread on me. That's not Stephen's heart. The answer is beholding God's glory in Jesus Christ. Stephen says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Do you know where this comes from? This comes from Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel, the prophet, he sees in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, this is Yahweh, and and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel saw that. Jesus secured that. You remember when he was on trial? Are you the Son of God? His answer is a quotation from that text. You will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus, Daniel foresaw it, Jesus secured it, and now Stephen was witnessing it. He was witnessing it. Not only had this Son of Man taken his seat at the right hand of God, now he's standing up for which to judge the earth. He is on his way to judge is the idea. That's what you get in the Old Testament when Yahweh rouses himself from his slumber. It is to judge his enemies. This is a glorious picture that Stephen beholds of the Son of Man. And you, and you hear in this message, you hear behind this, this vision that Stephen has given, you know, your body is about to be destroyed by rocks. But look at my son. Stephen. Look at my son. He is reigning with all power. His kingdom will not be destroyed. He stands at God's right hand, ready to judge. You hold fast, Stephen, because this son of man is yours. Unless a grain of wheat dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. You will not bleed in vain, Stephen. My kingdom will cover the earth one day and my son will see to it because he's risen from the dead. Jesus is heaven's joy. The one before whom myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands of angels prostrate themselves in adoration and praise 
the only Savior who spilled His blood for us and washed us clean, that we might reign with Him forever? Is there a higher gift or a more glorious person to behold than the Son of Man? There's not. Nothing in this world compares to Him. And that's what will get us through suffering. That's what will get us through affliction. It is Jesus That's how precious He is. It enables us to say, bring your rocks, bring your swords, bring your guns. You may do your worst, but this glorious Son of Man is worth more. And I want Him. Stephen is not losing joy by choosing death with Christ over life in this world. He is pursuing unspeakable joy at God's right hand which is found in the Son of Man. His martyrdom is not a tragedy. It is a triumph. It's a triumph because it displays the value of Jesus Christ and the power of His resurrection to set us free from the fear of death. Stephen's life didn't end at his stoning. Rather, it says Jesus received His Spirit. He will receive ours too when we remain faithful to Him in our ministry and in our message. But we will only remain faithful to Him in our ministry and in our message if we are beholding the glory of Christ in His Word. We don't need heaven opened, so to speak, to endure. God has spoken here in His Word. And it is here that we see the glory of Christ. Are you beholding His glory? Ben, you want to come?